From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our daily conversation on race, segregation, and community. Today, after all the protests last summer, why isn't there police reform? The police union threw up their hands and said, you're not serious about negotiating, so we're going to arbitration. Also ahead, a visit to the community music school, making their mark along Delavan Avenue. Buffalo-born documentary producer and director Shayla Harris from the PBS series Making Black America Through the Grapevine. Entrepreneur Rob Cornelius and Caroline Harries from the Food Trust. Part of our goal with these programs is to get the government to recognize healthy food access as a right. I'm Angelie Preston. Thank you for being here. We begin with reporter Jeff Kelly from the Investigative Post. He talks with Dave Debo about why all those BLM calls for police reform fizzled in the current contract talks. Let's roll back to the summer of 2020, Dave. Streets were filled with protesters, and in the halls of government, you had council members responding to those protesters saying, yes, let's look at the police department, how it works, how we discipline police officers, how we train them. And this is an opportune time, said Darius Pridgen, the council president, to push for reforms because we are in the midst of a contract negotiation. And some of the reforms that people wanted probably couldn't happen without a change in the contract. Exactly. Some things require concessions from the union during contract negotiations. Other things, you know, that summer, Byron Brown instituted some reforms. He uh, he conf- he sort of reconfirmed the ban on chokeholds. He implemented a policy of of appearance tickets for minor infractions and things that were meant to sort of de-escalate interactions between the police and the public. But some things require contractual changes. And here, here they were, protesters in the streets and presumably negotiators at the table. But it turns out that contract negotiations really had been at a stalemate since the contract expired the year before in July 2019. And for the last three years, they really have not progressed. And in fact, what has happened is this. Earlier this year, the police union threw up their hands and said, you're not serious about negotiating. You're not coming through with any counteroffers that are meaningful. So we're going to arbitration. And in arbitration, the only thing that is considered is wages and benefits. Why? If it was going to arbitration, how come there wasn't a consideration of all these broader issues that, again, people wanted to see change on? Well, for one thing, because the city hadn't put them on the table. And when the union calls for arbitration, they determine what questions are going to be uh, addressed in this binding arbitration. Mm. And they said, listen, you're not serious about talking about money. We asked for a 3.5% annual raise. You said zero. We'll give you nothing. And so the police union, whose job is not to reform themselves or the department, but rather just to get the best deal possible for the members, said, hey, we've got this tool. It's called binding arbitration. We're going to use it. We're going to use it. And this summer in July, the arbitration panel that heard the cases awarded them raises, not quite as much as the union asked for, but uh, nonetheless raises. And now, this fall, As a result, the police union has their raises and back pay, mind you. And the city basically got nothing, no concessions in exchange. You, You say the city is still in negotiation. Can the city turn and say, 
okay, the arbitrator gave you your raise, but in exchange for that, I want uh, greater accountability for misconduct, or I want uh, freedom in scheduling, or I want... uh, If the carrot is already out there, if they already have the raise, can't the city say, okay, now you have to give us something? Well, if the police have gotten at least partly what they want, which is money, they have no incentive to give anything back at this point. Except for this, there's some, still some leverage for the city because there is no contract. The arbitration award, that's not a contract. So they have to go back to the table. The police union still wants to know about back pay for the fiscal year that just ended in July, and they want raises going forward. So the city has some leverage, but they've lost a lot. Finish your carrots and peas or you get no dessert. Well, guess what? I already ate my dessert. Yeah, and the thing about this, Dave, is according to conversations I had with the police union back in that summer of 2020, this is not new. The police union president, John Evans, told me that he had been a party to three contract negotiations in his career with the union. He said that the Brown administration had never pushed for police reforms at those negotiating tables, that all of them had always boiled down to wages and benefits. But the union was the one that went to the arbitrator and said the scope of our binding arbitration here should be money alone. Are they not culpable for the small agenda, too? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But again, it is not the job of the union to reform the police department. It's up to the administration to go in good faith to the negotiating table, in good faith, but maybe with a baseball bat in their pocket, you know? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And get what they want to get things like residency requirements, things like annual performance reviews, other things like, you know, looking at seniority, the way that assignments are determined and promotions and things like that. Those are those are sacrosanct to the union. You'd have to give up a lot to in order to buy concessions mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And of course, they've already given up a lot of leverage if they even wanted to touch that sacred cow. How much of your impressions that you got from the union should be taken with a certain amount uh, a grain or seven of salt. Oh, of course. Um, because obviously, if not only is it their job to get these raises, but it's their job kind of to, to make the union look good and make the city look like it's not doing what it's supposed to. That helps their cause. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, so, you, of course, when, when, when the president of the union, John Evans, uh, takes umbrage, at uh, the mayor portraying the union as a hurdle to reform or, you know, or unwilling to negotiate. Of course, you take that with several grains of salt. But on the other hand, the evidence suggests that what he says is correct. And when we, in 2020, when we analyzed the union and the history of contract changes and amendments to the contract and all this evolution of the agreement over 30 years, the labor lawyers we consulted said, yeah, you know, this doesn't look like a lot of back and forth. This looks like, in fact, what happens is it always boils down to money, that these issues of how the police actually run the department, uh, what managerial uh, rights the commissioner has on things like discipline and and the structure of the department, these things don't really seem to be frequently addressed within the contract. Addressed within the contract, which suggests to the people we interviewed that these have not been priorities for the Brown administration or before that the Masiello administration or the Griffin administration way, way back. 
So there is a history here of no reform being included in the contract, he would say. That's what the people we interviewed back in 2020 said. And, you know, so I, I guess the key point is there's plenty of blame on both sides. You know, you need a full, full shaker of salt when you're talking to either <laughs> side. Jeff Kelly from the Investigative Post. We turn to Rob Cornelius now, a big force in the community, working with the guys from Criselda Records and so many other business groups. Here's Thomas O'Neill White. Again, you're a small business owner. How did you get your foot in the door? I'll be honest, we grew up in the town gardens. It was a little utility clause I used to call my office when I was a kid, and I totally forgot about that till my mom had to remind me of that. I always wanted to be a businessman. I was either going to be a basketball player, but I stopped growing at 6'2", or a business <laughs> owner. But the business that God led me to was not the business I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a clothing store or something like that. But he led me into a business, RC Enterprise, which to help my community. You know, with RC Enterprise, my wife and I, we done done multiple backpack giveaways, food drives, um, actually, too, I assist Conway Machine with Conway Cares to make sure that he get Conway Cares off the ground and make things run smooth there. I really stumbled into it. You know, God moved me in a totally different direction to what I wanted to do. And best believe we will we will talk a little bit about uh, Conway the Machine and the Griselda guys later. As someone who has found success in the business sector, what what is something you would tell an aspiring entrepreneur? Um, do your research on location for one. Let your business be your passion, because if you're if you're doing your business just to get a quick buck and it's not your passion, your business is going to fail. You know, do your research, get your books together, but get a strong team behind you. No one is successful without a strong team. Can you talk a little bit about your team? Um, you know what? Honestly, people think my team is this huge team, but when I sit down at the table, it's my wife and it's my daughter. You know, we come up with a plan, and trust me, I come up with a million ideals and they're like, uh, that's, that might not be the one that we want to roll with this time. You know, <laughs> my wife recently had to tell me, pump your brakes on the ideal that I had, you know, for December. She's like, that's not going to happen this year. Mm-hmm. You know, and I kind of had to take a step back. That's like uh, me and my sister when I when I present a new pair, a new article of clothing that I want to wear. She's like, Thomas, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they treat us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, what What's to be done to get more minority and women-owned businesses into these areas? Oh, Bailey, Jefferson, Fillmore, sustainable businesses. They have to want to go there. You know, a lot of people want to go where there's heavy traffic. You know, Hurdle is heavy traffic. You know, Elmwood is heavy traffic. Main Street, heavy traffic. They want to go where it's heavy traffic, but not knowing if you ever drove down Bailey from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock is bumper to bumper. You know, it's heavy traffic. And this business on Bailey that's growing and sustaining. King City has been there for years mm-hmm. and not going out of business at all. So his business is on Bailey, but they have to want to go there first. But the city has to make it enticing for them to go there. Like, it needs some cleanup in those areas. You know, if they get some cleanup in those areas and make those streets look like the Elmwoods, look like the Hurdles. What are some obstacles to running a successful business? Yourself. How so? A lot of people, they want to be a business owner. They want to run a business, but they get in their own way. Everything in this world is obtainable. Um, But you have to have the motivation to go get it. You know, never, ever. My wife got got this thing. You can cry about it today, but you get it together tomorrow. You have to pull them up by the bootstraps. And if it's an obstacle in your way, this way, 
You got to find a way to get around that obstacle and make your business successful. Never let anyone slow you down. You know, you look at Jay-Z. He came from the projects. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at how he came up. He didn't let nothing stop him from being a billionaire. He went around every obstacle. Was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. But he did not get in his own way. He found another way to make it happen. He had to work in a lot of circles that weren't available maybe to him yes. or other or other rap oriented business owners. Mm-hmm. So he had to he broke the mold. Exactly. Or you look at our former president, President Obama. It wasn't easy for Obama to be president. It wasn't easy for a black man to be a senator or a president, but he made it look good. He made it look easy, but he he let our younger generation know that, hey, you can be this too. Talk to me about like like moving in those spaces. There's got to be like an attitude towards it. There's got to be a look. You're in a suit right now. Like you're coming in. You are dressed to the nines. There's there's got to be like an attitude you have to have and a look that goes with it to move in these spaces. And if you're not sitting at these tables, you're creating the table for yourself. Yes. Um, it's a confidence. It's, I've been confident my whole life. Even when I was at my lowest point, I was confident. When you walk in these rooms, you have to be confident, but you have to be knowledgeable what you're talking about. Because one thing, you can get in front of the right people. Once you're in front of those people, you have to know what you're saying. You have to know how to put yourself in position. Then you have to know when to listen. Because sometimes in a room, you can be in a room with, with millionaires and you just sit there and soak it all up. Talk to me about the community work you do. I know it's a very special thing to you. You've done more than a few things this summer, including a basketball tournament, Shea Day, in honor of the late, great DJ Shea. Real quick, are you a part of that billboard? Did you put that billboard up on, on the Kensington? That says, long live DJ Shay. I can't take credit for that. That was all um, Benny and City Boy. That was all BSF doing that. All right. All right. Drumwork Music Festival, numerous food and clothing drives. How does it feel to be able to bring these events to the community? You know what's funny? It, it, it feels surreal to me because where I come from, like I told you, I come from the town gardens. And if anybody in Buffalo knows about the town gardens, it's mm. one of the most poverty, poverty stricken areas in the city. Um, but my mom got us out of there when I was 18. I went away to college. She moved. She bought, you know, they got a home and they moved. So it feels really great to do this because if you can't give back, you've been blessed and you can't give back and be a blessing. It's a problem. I would be remiss if I didn't mention your affiliation with Conway the Machine, Benny the Butcher, Westside Gun, known as Griselda. They're, they, too, are always giving back to the community, um, even before 514. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about their local impact? I mean, they're, they're known across the globe, but they're Buffalo boys. They got their start here. Talk to me about them, please. Um, for one, let me give props where props is due. Let me give props to my guy, brother, the late great DJ Shea, who mm-hmm. put all those guys together. But um, I could speak on Conway. Conway has a heart of gold. You know, when you listen to his music, but then you see him in action, a lot of things we did with Conway Care as far as feeding the homeless, as far as taking care of the young lady who had Bell's palsy, you know, as far as giving Thanksgiving meals out, as far as him actually giving money to people in need and paying for funerals and taking care of weddings and taking care of other people's bills off the kindness of his heart. That's him. You know, I'm just there to, to be a vessel to help him do it, you know, but and um, 
And then Benny has a really love for his city, too. You know, Benny don't advertise a lot of things that he do, but he's very active in the city. If you look at a Little League football team, it's called Buffalo Kids. Everybody in the country know that's Westside Gun. But Westside also gives back to the um, city of Buffalo a lot. So these guys, their heart is in Buffalo. No matter where they're at in this globe, their heart is right here in Buffalo. And they all have a heart of gold. Do you give them your perspective on things, on how to do, how to, how to, how to give back to the community, words of advice, words of wisdom? How does that, how does that go? Um, Conway, yes. Me and Conway, you know, Conway, that's my guy. You know, and, and it's not really advice. We just knock ideas off each other. You know, when it's time for a community event, you know, he'll come up and say, hey, this is what I want to do. Or I saw this in the paper. What can we do to help? And then we brainstorm from there. DJ Shea. Legend. Legend. Legend in this area. Talk about his impact on Buffalo's hip hop scene. Because I couldn't, I can't, I can't not do this without talking a little bit more about hip hop and, and the legends in this area. I'm going to tell you, it would not be no Griselda if it wasn't for the late, great DJ Shea. This Buffalo hip-hop scene would not be what it is. You got to realize you got people like DJ Premier shouting him out. You got people, you know, the, the, the greats. You got the Busta Rhymes and all those guys. You know, when Shea passed, it was a lot of emails and text messages came through the chain from big-time celebrities. You know, DJ Shea is the pillar, you know, when it comes to Buffalo hip-hop. Even though he's not here in the physical, he's here He's here in the spiritual. If you see the way Westside, Conway, City Boy, you know, Benny, you see the way they're moving right now. Because I can't forget City Boy because City Boy was actually up under Shea and learned the business. So if you see all the BSF clothing, that's City Boy. But that's okay. all Shea's influence. You know, Shea actually laid the groundwork. You know, so he made it, you know, he made it easy for guys. He laid the groundwork. You know, Shea was, was the big homie. How do you continue his legacy in the um, years to come? You know, Shay has a son, Dominic, and he has a daughter, Shamir, and he has a grandson. My job is just to be there for them now, you know, to make sure they good, you know. But Shay's legacy, just look at any, um, any Griselda show, any one of the guys. You know, his legacy is living on. You know, when you, when you, when you listen to the radio, you hear the beats, you know, you hear 18-wheeler, mm-hmm. you know, Shea Legacy lives on. If if you listen to um any of the Conway CDs, you know, you listen to Forever Dropping Tears, he poured his heart out into to that song. You know, Shea's legacy is gonna live on regardless. Last thing I wanna ask you, something I ask all my guests. It's a very broad question. Just but from your point of view, what does Buffalo need? Buffalo need unity. You know, Buffalo's one of the most segregated towns in America. I spent 10 years down south in Macon, Georgia, and they were more together than Buffalo was. And that was a problem with me. Buffalo definitely need unity. The business owners need unity and the people need unity. If we get unity, you think the only time we're unified is at a Bills game. At a Bills game, you know, there's no hate there. You know, so if we get unity in Buffalo, can can you just imagine how much our city will really grow? But how do we get to that? How do we get that unity? Is it is it a coming together of one person at a time? One person at a time. One person at a time. You know, when we stop looking at color and we stop looking at gender and we stop looking at some of these things that and we put our blindfolds on, we just start looking at the person. 
because if I cut myself and I cut someone else, it's all red. Rob Cornelius. And now Caroline Harris from the Food Trust in town last month for a national summit on food equity. So the USDA estimates about 19 million people live in neighborhoods without access to fresh, affordable, and nutritious food options across the country. And we know that access to healthy food is, is a human right. Families living in communities without healthy food options are therefore missing out on affordable access to nutritious food, as well as the economic opportunities like jobs brought by healthy food access. And you're coming to Buffalo as part of this forum to look at what could be done here, but also to address it, I guess, on, on a national scale. Correct. We, we know that and, and feel that grocery access is an important foundation in a community and a baseline from which other key programs can build, such as those that support affordability like SNAP, WIC, and nutrition incentives, as well as nutrition education programs and in-store marketing of healthy food. And, uh, you know, people living in areas without grocery stores and other venues with healthy food must rely on small neighborhood stores, which tend to sell limited healthy food options. So we see that communities across the country have been affected by this issue and we're interested in a conversation to help elevate this issue and work towards solutions. What is the food trust? When I hear the word trust, I think, forgive me, of finances. Do you subsidize projects that end up solving the, the problem? We are a nonprofit uh, organization that's based in Philadelphia, and our mission is to ensure delicious, nutritious food for all. And we do that in a variety of ways. We work to support uh, and increase access to healthy food through multiple venues, such as uh, farmers markets, grocery stores, healthy corner stores. We work to promote affordability of food through the support of programs like the SNAP program and nutrition incentives. And we also work to connect to nutrition education resources. Tell me what works. I know Philadelphia has had a lot of different scenarios. Uh, I remember President Obama's State of the Union address where one of your grocers was singled out. And I've seen that there are initiatives all over the country as well. Of, Of all the things that you've seen, is there something that really could be used pretty much anywhere, including here in Buffalo? In many states and at the federal level, there are public-private programs called Healthy Food Financing Initiatives. These programs are designed to support healthy food retailers in low to moderate income and under-resourced communities through financing and technical assistance. And so part of our goal with these programs is to get the government to invest in this issue of healthy food access, to recognize healthy food access as a right. So when government and other partners are developing roads and buildings and houses, we also want to think about where people can access healthy food. So these healthy food financing initiatives provide um, you know, funding, typically uh, as grants and loans, uh, to healthy, qualifying healthy food retailers in low to moderate income, under-resourced communities, both urban and rural. I, I have to pick at one of your words there, qualifying healthy food distributors. What does that mean? Qualifying healthy food retailers. And so that can be a grocery store. It could be a farmer's market. It could be a healthy corner store. Typically, programs look to ensure that projects are increasing access to healthy food and what would be considered an under served or under-resourced community, um, that that community is low to moderate income, and also that there's community support for the project. Locally, we have two uh, projects underway. One of them is an urban garden, and the other is a food co-op program. Uh, Without knowing all the complete details, that's the kind of stuff that would fit this program, correct? Particularly the co-op and and projects with a, a retail component, projects that can accept SNAP, 
um, and other benefits to the purchase of, of healthy food. In the communities where they've been able to, to some degree, perhaps conquer this issue, is there a common theme? Uh, does does what Philadelphia do and what, I don't know, theoretically Chicago does um, point to certain things that have to be in place, or, or is it not necessarily a one-size-fit-all? We've seen that partnerships are really critical to the success of efforts to improve access to healthy food, in large part because a variety of perspectives can help inform solutions and make them stronger and more sustainable. We also hear that financing is key, in particular offering grants as an incentive. Uh, in addition to loans, and then pairing financing with technical assistance and business supports is also critical for things like business development, marketing and outreach, sourcing produce, equipment purchasing, such as refrigeration and other infrastructure supports. And we we know that community perspective and voice is critical to understanding the need in communities and to crafting sustainable solutions that address that need. And then finally, we know that a comprehensive approach that includes increasing access to healthy food in multiple venues, promoting affordability, and supporting nutrition education efforts will have a greater impact than any of these efforts on their own. As you know, uh, the the entire premise, not only for the conference, but uh, for the discussion, is that in the area around the May 14th shooting that have happened at a grocery store, it is the only grocery store. Um, several people I've talked to say that uh, they're still grieving. Some have said they would never even go back to that store. When you start to work with communities, do you work on those issues, or is it strictly just a matter of providing another alternative to the place that they don't necessarily want to go to? I think the community's perspective on what's going to work in a particular area is the most important factor supporting projects that's really important to understand what community residents will support and want to see in their community. Some of the solutions that you've seen elsewhere, do they all really just boil down to community input, interest, and then the money to drive whatever idea comes out of the community? I think that's the key takeaway. Absolutely. I think that's the key takeaway with a framework of understanding there's no silver bullet, that a comprehensive approach is really what makes a difference that uh, we see communities thrive when there are multiple points of access, again, from grocery stores to farmers markets to healthy corner stores, so that the healthy choice is the easy choice. And where you're also promoting affordability for program, through programs like Nutrition Incentives and the SNAP program, and then connecting to educational, nutrition educational resources as well. This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights from WBFO's daily discussion on race, education, and our shared humanity. Each morning on WBFO at 10 and rebroadcast every night at 9. We continue now with a conversation I had with Buffalo Shayla Harris. She worked as a producer and director on the Henry Louis Gates PBS documentary, Making Black America. You mentioned one of the tropes um, that um, mainstream media tends to focus on when it comes to black people is is, is resilience. And it is mentioned, um, one of the uh, persons in, in the documentary mentions how we are resilient, we are resilient people, but does it ever get tiring to have to always be resilient and to always like that's just supposed to be expected does it get tiring yeah i think it is 
exhausting. And I think that's partly why you see the response in the CPO world to showcase other stories. You know, when you think about the emergence of something like Ebony Magazine, you know, it, it becomes to be famously known for showing these images of Emmett Till's casket in Jet Magazine that sort of like ignited the civil rights movement. But for the very beginning, it was there to showcase black accomplishment, black beauty, Black people going and becoming doctors and dentists and 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 life of leisure and just showing that there's more to the Black story than just struggle. Um, so I think that is sort of the <clears throat> through line that we saw in these networks and these organizations in these spaces is that they are trying to create this kind of counter narrative for ourselves that, you know, maybe everyone else thinks that we're about X, but we all know that we're about Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Um, so uh, to me, I think that's really powerful to show just the agency within the African-American community to say, like, you know, we define ourselves. We don't let other people define us. Your upbringing, we, we touched on it um, at the screening of Making Black America and what um, it would surprise us is that you're you you're from Buffalo. So my question is, how did your upbringing in Buffalo influence your career path? That's a really great question. So I'm a third generation Buffalonian. Both my parents were born there and my grandfather on my mother's side was also born there. Um, and so, I, you know, I come from a legacy of sort of great migration families, like um, the other parts of my family that didn't aren't originally from Buffalo came from the South or came from Chicago to come to Buffalo. Um, so I have this sort of diasporic sense of the African-American history sort of in my bloodstream. And the community that I grew up in um, on the east side of Buffalo was really an example of the sepia world that we're talking about, you know, like I had lots of cousins and lots of families and we um, we knew our neighbors who we grew up with. I would like run the streets with my cousins until the streetlights came on and, you know, my parents would be playing bid whist and like talking smack and playing records and singing and music and enjoying themselves. Um, and, you know, my grandmother was a nurse by day, but then also was an Eastern star and had leadership positions in um, that organization and was very active. Um, so for me, um, I grew up in this sepia world that really nurtured me and showed me how to live and how to create community. Um, and so, you know, what my experience, my first experience outside of that community was actually going to middle school at Frederick Law Olmsted, which is in a completely different neighborhood, completely different community. The first time I actually like went to school with white kids and that was like, I felt like I was able to bring my community with me <laughs> to kind of help navigate that experience and felt really confident in who I was before I had an experience. So in some ways that sort of foundational stuff really shaped me in Buffalo, but then also just the sense of responsibility to the world, visual, culture and um, education was always really important. And so I think the work that I do as a filmmaker integrates all of those 
things. So I want to talk about uh, two things, and you, um, it, this, I think the filmmaker uh, is a perfect segue to my next question that I had. Um, is one of the things that you did mention was that you actually were a journalist before you became a filmmaker. So, what made you want to? Uh, what what made you want to do the transition from from telling the story from a journalistic perspective to actually being in the director's seat, telling the story? That yeah, way? this is such a great question. Thank you for <laughs> giving me the opportunity to kind of geek out about this um, because uh, you know I, there is still a part of me that will always be a journalist who is always you know curious, um, wanting to find the truth of the matter really willing to ask the tough questions and learn about things and then share that with an audience. I think that is the most beautiful essence of what it means to be a journalist. But for me, the distinction, I think, between journalism and filmmaking is is mostly just a creative exercise. I think a lot of journalistic forms are very strict and a little narrow for me in terms of the full range of expression that I want to bring to my storytelling. And so I've sort of found that filmmaking gave me a little more room to run and uh, the ability to kind of paint with a little more colors. Not everything is so black and white that there can be nuance that you can add. So that for me is where I see filmmaking being really exciting. And you know, this is just the beginning. Like I feel like there's so many more things that I wanna explore. So for me, that's, that's the distinction that filmmaking just feels like there's more places in room to experiment. You actually um, were supposed to do the uh, production on making Black America was supposed to happen prior to the pandemic. And then, or was it? The timeline is that we had finished the previous series that this team worked on together, The Black Church, in February or early 2020. We had just finished that film. And, you know, we were hearing that this next project was on deck. And so we started researching it in the at the beginning of the pandemic. So like in April, that's first spring where nobody knew what was happening. We were just all inside, just reading a bunch of stuff. And then all the, you know, protests and the racial reckoning and all this stuff started happening in that summer that we were researching um, this film. And we were like, oh, wow, this really gives this film a really important context and um, even more relevance and why it's so important for us to tell this kind of story so that people can understand that this, these movements and these responses don't necessarily come from nowhere. So, you know, we started production in late um, 2020, um, you know, before there were vaccines, before, before anything, you know, people were still pretty isolated from each other when we started production in the late fall. How do you go into making a documentary about these communities and have it be authentic without, without overexposing, without overexposing them? Yeah, that's, um, that's a consistent question that we get is like, do you feel like you're telling secrets <laughs> on this community by lifting the veil? Um, so to speak. Um, and, you know, what I think is really important about storytelling in general is that, like I said, it gives shading 
to people's stories. It adds layers um, and adds some complexity and nuance. And so I think that's really what this series is doing. More than telling secrets, it's um, it's actually revealing how um, just amazing this community is and has been throughout its history and is really uncovering like hidden heroes. You know, I think a lot of um, history in general is really focused on like, who are the leaders and who are the great men and who are the, you know, the people that people are rallying around. And I think what this series really does is kind of lift up the sort of like um, idea that like all of these voices are contributing to a really powerful song. And so we want to um, highlight some of those voices that don't get heard that often, aren't really spotlighted. You know, the one story that we keep sharing is like we, you know, this really pivotal moment in, in labor history is the Atlanta washerwomen's strike. You know, this is in at the end of reconstruction, but you know, these women are laborers. Most, we don't even know most of their names, but they brought Atlanta to its knees. And um, by unifying and by being um, together and saying, you know, we need to stand up for ourselves. And um, I think those stories aren't really heard that often. And I think that's really just inspiring to hear those stories. And so I think that's um, the way we, we thought about our approach to this series was really doing that. I want to go to uh, one of the parts um, that I was able to to view um, at the screening, and um, it talks about Harlem being a black metropolis, which I absolutely loved. And it also gets into um, I don't want to tell everything, um, <laughs> but it get, it gets into how this black metropolis was essentially was essentially. Um, converted, I guess you would say, in, into a ghetto because of, you know, racial covenants and, um, you know, the, the, the people in power did not like this, 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 this group, you know, like this, this black metropolis happening. Um, I feel like that happens in a lot of communities and has happened in a lot of communities, um, including Buffalo. And you mentioned um, that you were bused to Olmstead, which, you know, was white. Did you do in your upbringing? Did you did you feel like did you feel that way too? Like like that you were in a black metropolis growing up on the east side, and then it like slowly turned into um, you know <laughs> something else because of redlining and segregation. Right? No, it's it's so funny. I mean, it's yeah. That, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I, yeah, I, I love that, that part of the series too, where we look at the sort of impact of redlining and segregation and how it creates, um, these communities, um, you know, that, that have negative sort of repercussions because these communities are under-resourced or they're crowded or, you know, people are being charged exorbitant rents and, um, you know, uh, what we talk about in the series, and then I'll get to my own experience, um, is that, you know, that sort of congestion and congregation um, or segregation creates congregation in the sense that it actually creates this community. And, um, you know, they find really creative ways like rent parties and the numbers and these sort of informal economies to help support each other um, in those spaces. And so what I'll say about my own experience is just like, 
you know, all I knew growing up was a black world. Like I didn't know <laughs> anything else. So, um, you know, my day to day was, you know, my family and my neighborhood and the schools that I went to growing up. And I just, you know, going to Juneteenth at MLK Park and just like really existing in an all black world. So it, it wasn't a, something I questioned really until I started busing and going to the other side of the city and being like, oh, my God, there are other people who live like completely other lives and they don't know about <laughs> They don't know about Bidwis and they don't know about Juneteenth and they don't know about all this stuff. Like that's kind of, that's kind of crazy. Um, so I think for me, it was like, wow, I didn't even know that that other world over there actually really existed. I mean, you see it on TV and you see it on this other stuff, but my sort of day to day was, was not that. So you just kind of think that it's just like a TV kind of thing. Um, so, you know, being bused to that school was really, um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was really wild, I think is the only way I can sort of describe it now. I don't think I had language for it when I was a kid. I was just kind of like, whoa, this is a little bit weird, <laughs> you know? Um, but like I said, I, I do think that my ability to kind of navigate that space really comes from like the confidence that I felt like I had coming from the place that I come from and coming from the family that I come from that like I know who I am I know that I have ability and you know going to these spaces I'm able to um able to deal with it because of that that's Shayla Harris on Buffalo, What's Next, we often look at the role that people or institutions can play in transforming a community. We close today with Jay Moran. Nearly a century old, community music schools stood as an Elmwood Avenue fixture for many of those years. Now, you'll find it on East Delavan, around the corner, about one mile from the Jefferson Avenue tops. School administrators say the move has been positive to this point, and that's certainly the opinion of Cheryl Jordan, a retired teacher who's now following a lifelong dream of learning to play the violin. I felt like it was out of my reach, that I wasn't able to really be a part of the community school. It just, I don't know, it just, I never, I just didn't feel like I would fit in. I felt like it was for a different population. That was just my thinking. So I started looking around for... But you know, that's interesting you should say that because earlier in one of my conversations with someone here, they said, you know, sometimes... It, the music and the music school can come off as being elitist. Is that kind of what you thought? Yes. Thank you for saying it that way, because I didn't quite know how to word it. Um, yeah, I did have that feeling. And, I, you know, you want to fit in on some levels. I think somebody had recommended, I was, yeah, I was talking to my friend, girlfriend, and she knows Phil, and she said, why don't you try the community school? And I said, community school? So I did, and when I called, oh, my God, the warmth the, the friendliness, the affordability. I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm in. In its mission statement, Community Music School says it's committed to providing musical public service programs to Western New York and quality music instruction for individuals of all ages and levels of ability, regardless of age, aspirations, or financial resources. 
Marketing coordinator Brittany Upshaw took us on a tour as we found out more. Here's our children's room, so we do the children's classes in here. So we have classes for basically from newborns to um, like adults. So we have music classes for babies that they do with their parents. Then once they get about three or so, they can do music on my own. And they do it's basically like kind of like the same kind of class. They learn rhythm, things like that, that you need to know to when you want to go into an instrument or singing. Um, and they do those classes in here. During our tour, we met with staff and adult students who shared their experiences and their talents. Mike Klein says he began taking voice lessons at CMS after he turned 60 with impressive results. He's been with the school for four years now and has observed the change since the school moved from Elmwood to the east side. I have noticed when we do have recitals, there is a more diverse population than what was at our other recitals. Okay. Um, so I think the community is, is supporting this. From Hall of Fame fiddler Phil Banizak to Carol McLaughlin, who played with Dizzy Gillespie, the school features its own diverse faculty. Hassan Al-Mufti teaches the piano, which he learned to play as a young boy in Baghdad. The school was established in the late 60s by musicians from the Soviet Union. The classes every day from 12 at noon till 4 o'clock. From 8 in the morning till 12 is academic, regular school. Then from 12 to 4 o'clock is music training, whether piano or choir or theory of music, whatever. Every, every day. Age of six all the way till you graduate from high school. And then the, there's a contract after that, after you graduate from high school, they take you to Moscow to continue your uh, education there, music education. Yeah, it was really one of a kind. The Iran-Iraq war and other international developments veered Hassan al-Mafdi off course. He spent six years in Jordan. In 2001, he came to the United States as a refugee and ended up in Buffalo teaching at the community music school. That's quite a journey uh, <laughs> <It> <laughs> from is, yeah. your origins. Uh, tell me, uh, I'm so curious about, because now you have a lot of experience here, you've had a lot of students. What about since moving over here onto Delavan Avenue, what is it? Have you seen a difference in your students? Or a different? A huge difference. It's because this building uh, was, you know, accommodate all all our needs. You know, uh, they built it in a way. Of course, it was already existed, but the the rooms, the studios, is all uh, you know meets our needs. Can you? Uh can you teach anybody to play, to play the piano? Yes. I mean, the difference between us and, like, let's say, uh, Juilliard, for instance, or Eastman, or anywhere, we have the same standards. We have a curriculum. But we accept everyone. The art of teaching is how to get the information to the students in a certain amount of time. Of course, if it's extremely gifted and especially talented, they will get it right away. Others, it takes them time. So it's our job to understand how their brain function, 
how they understand things. And little by little, make them play. Is it rewarding? Yes. Especially when you see, especially with, with adults, you know, when they, when they come to me and they say, you know, I always wanted to play piano, but I couldn't afford it or I didn't have the time. And um, is it too late for me? No, the answer is no, it's not too late. And I can make them play in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> to make the school affordable to all income levels and to offer scholarships, the Community Music School is holding a fundraiser this Friday. Again, Brittany Upshaw. So tell me, I mean, tell me about this, this event. Yeah, so um, there are two international um, classical artists. So Andrea Ciccolisi and Alexandra Malafiev. Um, they're both coming to do a duo concert. Alexander is very, very well established in classical music. Um, he's done many, many events all over the um, all over the world and at so many different orchestras. He was actually at the Philharmonic last year as well, so he's coming along with his friend that's up and coming violinist. He's just starting to do his world tours around, so they're both coming and doing a tour and donating all the proceeds to us. So wow. yeah, the fundraiser is going towards helping our programming, helping keep funding students, because I just told you we're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We help students who maybe can't afford music lessons, we discount them so that they, they can be able to afford them income. Do, uh, I mean, are, do a lot of people take advantage of that? Yes, too? we have so many financial aid students. Is that so right? So many, yes. Right. And now that we're moving into you know, a neighborhood like you know, the neighborhood we're in, you know, it kind of it's really nice to see all people from the community take advantage of those kind of things too. And you are seeing that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Lots of people are taking advantage of financial aid. So the more people that we want to come, we want to have more funds so that everyone who wants to learn about music can. Hassan El Mufti stresses the opportunity offered by the Friday fundraising concert. Uh, expect excellence performance. And this is first time for Alexander Malfoy, which he's a superstar. And the prodigy like uh, Andrea Chikalisa joined forces in one concert. First time ever. It's going to be here in Buffalo and under the patronage of uh, Community Music School. Right here. So we're moving on down, sorry. That's Carlina fine. Williams. Um, she toured with um, Pink Floyd on the Dark Side of the Moon album in 1975 from Buffalo. Operations Director Paul Wara you know, so told the stories behind some of the portraits hanging at the Community Music School featuring students and faculty who've made a lasting impact. The most recent portrait is of Sarah Rogers. The faculty member who lost her life earlier this year when she was struck by a vehicle while riding her bike on South Park Avenue. And do it again. Watch this, watch the tuner and hit every note dead on, and you'll see. Phil Banizek is providing a fiddle lesson to Chris Murakowski one of the many adult students who were gracious enough to share their stories. My name is Ari Daniels. How long have you been a student here, Ari? Um, four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a new student. Yes. Um, I live um, in the, on the west side. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. What made you to decide to do this? I've done music for a lot of my life, and I'll hear things like, you know, in my head, but I can't really play all of them like on a flute like a you know so piano I thought might be nice to take up so I can kind of start creating some of the things that I'm experiencing and to be able to share them I figure you're never too old to learn something new so I turned 30 and was like all right well what 
what's new for me to get into. That's what led me here. And it's interesting how you mentioned your musical ideas. And is, is the piano helping you bring that forward? Absolutely. Again, like with flute, you can only play the melody, you know. Um, but with piano, you can play the, the melody and the harmonies. And um, just being able to kind of like tinker around and kind of like hear things, you know. Yeah, it's really cool. You've only been at it for four weeks, so this might be the wrong question to ask, but uh, do you have a, a, a hero? Honestly, Stevie Wonder has been like a hero of mine for as long as I can remember, and um, I was at home yesterday before my lesson and was like listening to him playing, and it just kind of gave a whole new context to, you know, his work. Um, so kind of just was like, yeah, this is great. I'm so happy I'm doing this, you know. That was also the case for Stacy Snyder. She's been studying at Community Music School for a few years in both voice and the piano. So, you know, this isn't to say I'm going to, you know, show up on Shay's stage anytime soon right. or anything like that. But, you but could, could you see yourself at a piano lounge or something like that playing? Maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, hope springs eternal. You're not shaking your hand, <laughs> hope springs eternal. Very nice, very nice. So you've been at the, uh, with the school then for five years. Mm-hmm. So you have lived through the transition of from Elmwood Avenue over here to Delavan. Yep. What has that been like? I, I loved the building on Elmwood. I mean, just a gorgeous building and, you know, the character and history of it. But then this new place is so much more open in physically open in that, you know, it's not an old Victorian home and it's more accessible for people. I just think it just feels like it kind of maybe like breathed a little new life into the school. That's interesting because um, just talking to some of the folks here, they are seeing people from this part of the city, this part of the community mm-hmm. coming in here. Obviously, you're doing your own lessons with your teachers, but I mean, have you kind of uh, come across that yourself? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, in, in, um, you know, just being here. Um, and in addition to lessons, I'm also uh, cataloging their music collection because I'm a librarian in my, my real life. Um, so I'm cataloging the collection. So I'm here more than just for my lessons. And so just being here, you know, walking through the lobby and, and being upstairs and stuff, I see people coming for lessons. And I do feel like I'm seeing a different demographic right. than on Elmwood. And what do you think that could mean for the community? Oh, music education is amazing. And it's, it, studies have shown that it, that playing music can enhance so many other parts of your life, like mathematics, for example. Um, and learning to read music is, and I, this is just my feeling of it, is a little bit like learning another language. And so I, I I don't see anything bad coming from being exposed to music in any way. Cheryl Jordan shares that view. The first-year violin student under Phil Banizak has the big dream of one day playing with the BPO. It's so important. It is so important because there are so many people of color that are so talented, so talented, and I think they really would like to be engaged in a uh, in a building like this, but sometimes I think they feel like it's not affordable, but you, they will work with you. They will work with you here in this building if you feel like you need help, because it's a non-profit, it's a non-for-profit organization, and um, 
So people need to know that you can follow your dream and you can take lessons. So I, I really want to get it out there, but I'm so proud of myself. Um, cause, and I never knew that there were other people of color that played the violin. But Phil started telling me about that, uh, you know, they were. And then I did my research, and I was like, whoa, there are a lot of people that look like me that play the violin. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is. You know what? There's this one gentleman, and I cannot remember his name, but he plays classical but he also plays hip hop he plays rap music on you should see this oh this he guy plays hip hop on he, a violin he, yes you can do so much with that you can do so much with that that's why i'm so intrigued by the violin four strings and just with the manipulation of your fingers going up and down that string you can make all kinds of notes and melodies when we met cheryl jordan said she had a lot to say she didn't disappoint a resident of the William Jefferson neighborhood, she admits she's not comfortable visiting the Jefferson Avenue tops where 10 black people were killed on May 14th. She says that's the view of many of her friends and neighbors. Trust needs to be restored. Do you find any healing in playing your music and practicing your music? Does it help? Practicing my music is comforting. Um, as, far, as far as healing the issues of racism or systemic racism, it's going to take more than playing a violin. I'm going to be honest with you. Okay. Um, the door is opening with, so maybe I'm contradicting myself a little bit, but the door is opening a little bit with feeling that, because I know that all people are not like that, um, but it does help to know that I could come here with a diverse population and I am, um, and this is to me kind of stinky to say or horrible to say that I'm accepted. Why, why do I have to even use those words? That I'm accepted and, and I matter. But that's the arena that we're, we're, we're struggling in, you know, to, to sometimes be accepted. And I don't like that. And I certainly don't like that word tolerate. Don't ever talk to me about tolerance. I hate that word tolerance. As if, you know, I'm some kind of uh, creature that, you know, you have to readjust your mind so that you can tolerate me. What about me tolerating you? It goes both ways. It goes both ways. So, um, but my, my, my studying and playing my violin it is healing for me, and it is beautiful for me, but it's something else. It's something else, yeah. So, yeah. Maybe when you're on that stage at the BPO, Ooh, maybe that'll be different then. I'll say, yeah, see? Uh-huh, uh-huh, see? Yeah, that'll be Uh-huh, uh, yeah, right. You didn't think it, did you? You didn't think that, mm-hmm. We know, we know, we know how to do this, too. So, yeah, that's where it'll, you, there you go. So now I'm even more motivated. I got this. All right. And I'll be sure to send you an invitation. <laughs> Remember when? <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> Cheryl, thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun talking to you. That's Jay Moran. These interviews and others like it are available for you each day. 
Our daily talk on race, education, the arts, and related issues is on air each morning at 10 on WBFO and repeats each night at 9. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for listening.